to the Mind Medicine Australia podcast, where we explore breakthrough innovations for mental illness. For new listeners, I'm Tommy Moore, host of this podcast, Mind Medicine Australia, which is a charity that is committed to helping alleviate the suffering caused by mental illness by expanding the treatment options that are available to medical practitioners and their patients. We are supporting the development of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy programs within Australia by providing educational material and events, therapist training, ethical and legal guidelines, and supporting clinical research. In furtherance of this mission, the Mind Medicine Australia podcast aims to facilitate engagement between clinicians, researchers, mental health practitioners, and leaders in psychedelic-assisted therapies to provide expert opinion, share research results, and ultimately to help educate the public about potential new opportunities in patient treatment. As this field of research develops and enters maturity, communication between organisations, research institutions and policymakers is critical to ensure that this new model of therapy is well understood and coherent across the board. If you wish to support our mission, there are a number of ways that you can do this. Can join local chapter groups and be amongst the discussion, keep up to date with relevant information and also help to share this information to your community. You can share this podcast, leave a five-star review, that really, really helps. You can also provide comments or questions for the podcast, which again, really does help to expose and share this information. These are all, of course, zero-cost ways that you can help out. If you wish to be of financial support, you can donate directly at mindmedicineaustralia.org. Now, I have been asked by a number of people how they can support the podcast financially, which which I really, really appreciate. So in response to that, I've actually now created a Patreon account where you can support me in creating this content. And I also do another podcast called Mind Body Plants, which explores the entire spectrum of health. Now, I do both of these podcasts out of my own time. So there is a link to my Patreon account, which I've just created in the show notes. If you wish to support in any way that you can, I would really, really appreciate that. Even if it's $1 or $2 per month or or per episode or even just a one-off payment, if you wish to do so. This will, of course, allow me to, to give more of my time in creating this content. Once again, any amount is helpful and very, very much appreciated. Check out the show notes for all of those links and thank you for your support and interest in this emerging space. In this episode, I sit down with Dennis McKenna, or should I say we sit down with Dennis McKenna. This was actually the first time that I had done a three-way podcast. So one of my really good friends, uh, Diego Pinzon, had found out that I got into contact with Dennis and really wanted to to be a part of the conversation. So I said, hey, jump on board. Um, Diego is an incredible individual, incredibly passionate individual. Diego studied his Bachelor of Science in Psychology, then went on to do his Master's in Transpersonal Psychology and is now in the teaching faculty of Psychedelics Today. He is also a research assistant at the Psyche Institute and also Vice President of Delos Psyche Research Group and has, has had experience as a mental health practitioner. So it was really great to have his expertise in preparing and delivering this podcast. A little bit about Dennis McKenna for those that do not know. He's an ethnopharmacologist, research pharmacist, lecturer and author. 
brother of the famous psychedelic advocate Terence McKenna and is a founding member and director of ethnographic research at the Hefte Research Institute, which is a non-profit organization involved in investigating the potential of therapeutic uses of drugs. Dennis spent a number of years as a senior lecturer for the Center for Spirituality and Healing, a department within the Academic Health Research Center at University of Minnesota. He received his master's degree in botany from the University of Hawaii in 1979, his PhD in botanical sciences in 1984, and continued his postdoctoral research fellowships in the Laboratory of Clinical Pharmacology, National Institute of Mental Health, and in the Department of Neurology, Stanford School of Medicine. He has authored numerous scientific articles and books, including co-author of The Invisible Landscape with his brother Terence. His publications appeared in the Journal of Ethnopharmacology, European Journal of Pharmacology, Brain Research, Journal of Neuroscience, Journal of Neurochemistry, Economic Botany, and also elsewhere. In this conversation, Dennis, Diego, and myself chat about preserving Indigenous practices, uh, the challenges that we face in, in integrating psychedelic medicine in Western medicine and what that means for Indigenous cultures and practices and traditions. We chat about McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy. We look into the brain as a reducing valve of reality, you know, the brain-mind problem, how psychedelics bring the background forward. We chat about serotonin as kind of a, a coding mechanism of reality we, of course, talk about consciousness and symbiosis and what research questions should be asked in the next five to ten years. And trust me, much, much, much more. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I love getting into the spiritual and, and mystic cosmic realm of psychedelics and who better to speak to than Dennis McKenna. So I'm going to leave it at that. Please enjoy this conversation as much as I have enjoyed bringing it to you. Perfect. All right, Dennis, thank you so, so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to be able to sit down with you and talk to you. I, I really consider you one of the elders in the, the psychedelic space. You've influenced a number of thousands of people across the world and your work and your research and your passion in this space is Amazing. And I want to say thank you so much for, for taking out the time. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, I'll, I'll cop to be the elder. I'm certainly the elder. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean I'm a wise elder, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to fake it if we have to. So, but thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. And, this is all part of a bigger conference that you're doing, right? Yeah, so we've got a conference coming up in November in 2021 this year, mm -hmm. um, which you'll be invited to. Is that right? You'll be coming to Australia if all goes well? Not as far as I know. I, I don't have any plans to go there. Still, we're, yeah, we're still on uh, uh, travel restrictions here. Uh, the problem is not going someplace. The problem is getting back in. Uh, but, you know, uh, well, we'll see what happens. Right now, I don't have any plans to go to Australia. Fair enough. Well, we'll have to keep it to the virtual meeting in that case. But many of our listeners will have heard of you. But if you were to introduce yourself to someone who doesn't know who you are, how would you go about doing that? <laughs> well, 
you want the long story or the short story or the real story, I, I the don't real. know. Uh, well, I, I generally start out by saying I, I call myself an ethnopharmacologist. Uh, and that's a person who studies, you know, medicines, biologically active substances, basically. Doesn't all have to be psychoactive, but uh, often is. And uh, but the, the key thing is ethnopharmacology, as you can tell by the word, is ethno people and pharmacology, pharmacology. So usually the focus is on traditional societies or indigenous societies and how they use these substances. Uh, how I got into this is a bit of a longer story. I basically grew up in the 60s. My teenage years were in the 60s. And in some ways I was a child of the 60s. So I was a, in the counterculture uh, segment of society. And, uh, you know, as most of you know, I was I'm Terrence McKenna's younger brother. Uh, and everybody knows who Terrence is. And uh, so I can blame him for a lot of it or, you know, credit him, depending on how you want to look at it. He introduced me to psychedelics, uh, you know, along with uh, many other weird things in my latter years, you know, the late 60s. And uh, uh, so we were fascinated by psychedelics and continue to be. And uh, at a certain point in my nascent career as a teenager, I ran into a book. Uh, I don't know how it fell into my hands, but it was called The Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs. And it was the proceedings of a symposium that was put out sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health. And it was not public, it was a closed symposium held in San Francisco in 1967. And uh, the only thing that taxpayers ever got from this was this symposium proceedings. Somehow or other, this came in into my hands at the age of 18. And it was a real eye-opener for me because I had just recently discovered the, uh, the first book uh, that Carlos Castaneda brought out, The Teachings of Don Juan. And that had given me an idea about the ethnographic side of psychedelics, even though a lot of that was, he probably made up a lot of that, but I don't, it didn't really matter. I didn't know at the time, but that gave me the, you know, the cultural context of how these things are used. And the ethnopharmacologic search for psychoactive drugs gave me a perspective on more on the chemistry and the pharmacology and the kind of nuts and bolts of psychedelics and plant medicines in general. So between those two books, which were very influential, uh, I decided to go for a career in ethnopharmacology. And uh, 50 years later, in 2017, I organized a 50th anniversary commemorative symposium called the Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs 50 or ESPD 50. And from that, we published uh, the original symposium and the, the 2017 symposium as a, as a match set. We also, unlike the uh, 
original symposium, they didn't have Facebook live streaming or anything like that in 1967. Nobody knew even what the internet was. But in 2017, we had all that. So we live streamed our presentations uh, uh, on Facebook. And at certain points, we had, uh, we had more than 75,000 people watching these presentations. So uh, that was very gratifying, you know, and, and at least a lot of people uh, now know what ethnopharmacology means. And I, I'm gonna put the, uh, a link to the videos from that conference up here uh, and folks can watch it anytime. It's open access and all the presentations are up there. But that's, that's what got me started, was these two things at the age of 18. Um, and then I, as much as possible, directed my studies. And there was no program in ethnobotany as such. It's interdisciplinary. So I cobbled together a bunch of different courses, anthropology and botanical scientists, science, chemistry, and that sort of thing, and try to uh, create my own program in ethnopharmacology. And then I uh, started my graduate work at the University of Hawaii in 1976, but it didn't, you know, I got my master's there. And then I went on to the University of British Columbia and ended up uh, focusing my studies on ayahuasca primarily. So that's, that's my, that's my ticket, I guess you could say to the psychedelic world. And, and I've been involved in it ever since, uh, you know, on a professional level and a personal level, you know, plant medicines have been very uh, important to me in my own personal life. And that's just, the way it seems to be. You can't really get involved in these things and not be touched by them in, in some ways. So, uh, and, and I continued my career after graduate school, uh, you know, kind of a combination of neuroscience and, and botany. And, you know, I won't bore you with the long details, but here we are 50 years later, I'm still, still into it. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, you're 100% right. Um, people who seem to be so involved in, in the plant medicine world, I guess it's hard not to to experiment and, and explore what these substances are really all about. And of course, Mind Medicine Australia exists to enable the development of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapies and other therapies in Australia and the rest of the world. In terms of the Western clinical approach and research and science, it seems that we need an illness for people to use psychedelics in this Western context. And these practices, I mean, you would know better than anyone. I've been, lose, been used for millennia across ancient cultures and all across the globe. So what do you think the psychedelic community can do to preserve local Indigenous traditions as part of its introduction into Western medicine? Well, um, it's a challenge, you know. I mean, these traditions, um, these cultures, uh, are very fragile, you know, and and uh, both their knowledge of of these plant medicines and also their communities and the habitats, you know, where these plants grow, 
which happen to also be the habitats where the, the people that use them live as well, all of this is under a lot of pressure environmentally from many different directions. So, and suddenly, you know, psychedelics are now popular and almost respectable. You know, I say almost, not quite, but it, they're getting more respectable as their uh, as their uses for uh, for to treat different mental illnesses is coming to light, and medicine is reluctantly acknowledging that and accepting that. You know, overlooking often um, often the presumption is to benefit from these substances you have to be sick, you know, you have to need treatment, but that's not really true. Indigenous people don't, I mean, they use them to heal for sure, but they also use them as uh, essentially a spiritual practice and, and to keep in touch with the entities that they, you know, are in their worldview, the spirit uh, intelligences that inform their medicine and everything. And any recreational drug user, psychedelics user can tell you that, you know, you don't really have to have a mental problem to benefit. They are tools for exploring consciousness, you know, and consciousness is a big place and there's lots to be discovered. So uh, right now we're in a, you know, I think we're in a, a cultural historical transition, you know, where the rest of the world is discovering psychedelics and seeing their value and it's attracting investment, it's attracting a lot of attention, but it's a two-edged sword because, you know, when you get the first world or the, the global community trying to interface with these very fragile indigenous communities, you know who's going to lose out, you know, and essentially these communities are being transformed by the global interest in psychedelics, which I'm all for, you know, I, I think the world does need psychedelics. I do think that it has great potential to heal us, not only on the individual level, but on the cultural level, and even on the, on the, uh, you know, on the biological level as we are essentially uh, partners. We're in symbioses with these plants, these plants and, and fungi. And our culture needs a lot of healing. You know, we're a very dysfunctional culture. And, you know, I'm speaking globally. And so we're attracted, you know, to these indigenous traditions. But it's almost as though you know, it's like, it's like picking up an object that's so fragile that if you pick it up, you're going to break it. You know, it's that kind of thing. There's a great uh, danger of, uh, you know, destroying these traditions as we try to, you know, unintentionally the, with good intentions, but it's very hard to integrate them into the global context and have them remain intact and uncontaminated, uncorrupted. And uh, so that's the challenge that we face. You know, there, there may be a ways to do it, but we have to tiptoe gingerly through the, uh, you know, through the minefield and avoid making mistakes. And, you know, that's hard to do. 
Okay, thank you. I'll I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, I think this this might be related to to what you just said. Uh, can you tell us about the McKenna Academy for Natural Philosophy? Um, if you if you were to explain that to, to the public. Yeah, I would be delighted to. So uh, it's a nonprofit that I founded a couple of years ago. And uh, the idea is that, you know, as the name implies, that it's an academy. It's a place for education, teaching, learning. It's a place basically to unify these different constituencies. What we want to do is be a bridge between traditional knowledge and traditional peoples indigenous people and the modern world and particularly the world of biomedicine and you know contemporary practices with with psychedelics and the idea is to foster dialogue among these different groups and you know and, and you know uh, relate to relate to plant medicines almost as though they are partners in this endeavor, which I believe they are, you know, because I believe that our use of these natural medicines is an example of symbiosis. You know, this is a biological thing where different species collaborate in a mutually beneficial way. That is the better, that is the definition of symbiosis. And that's what we do with these plants. So the idea of the McKenna Academy, it's, it's uh, the, the, the model is the mystery school at Eleusis or the ancient mystery schools. It's kind of the, a place for the exploration of ideas and a wider view of the cosmos, you know, driven by curiosity and wonder basically, which is, uh, you know, I mean, I'm a scientist at heart, you know, and science, works very hard, it seems like, to, these days especially, it works hard to uh, kind of exorcise wonder and curiosity out of what it does. It becomes a very mundane affair. I think uh, a lot of scientists who practice, you know, as a profession, uh, lose sight of the fact that this is really a sacred quest in a certain way. You know, it's very easy to get lost in the minutia of, of big science, especially as it's practiced now. You know, well, science is about, you know, getting funding and having graduate school students and publishing papers and going to conferences and do all those things. You know, that's what you have to do to be a, a successful scientist in, in the academic world these days, which is probably why I'm not a successful scientist or because I never played that game. You know, I mean, I played it enough. I got plenty of papers published and so on, but I didn't want to have to get into the academic grind. I wanted my own curiosity to drive my science. And, and I've been successful at that. And there needs to be, I think, more of that in science and less of, because less of the other part, because it's possible to be a scientist and a successful scientist, if by that you mean you have many papers published and you have funding and all that, but it's possible to do all of those things without ever really thinking about what science is, you know, and that's what's missing, I think. And that's what uh, the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy 
seeks to foster. You know, natural philosophy is what science was, what science grew out of before it became uh, reductionist and quantitative and essentially uh, rejected the, the notion that there are many ways of knowing, you know, and they don't all have to be empirical and, and reductive, you, you know, so there's a wider context. And that's, that's what natural philosophy is about, is a way to uh, explore, to understand our relationship to the world, you know, as a species and as individuals. Uh, so that's, that's what it's about. It's a, you know, the, if, if our global culture is going to learn to use psychedelics in beneficial ways, it all comes down to education. You know, it comes down to learning the right way respectfully to use these medicines, to respect the traditions, not necessarily imitate them. I mean, you know, we borrow heavily from them. I don't think it works for us to attempt to be indigenous, but we can certainly learn from what indigenous people have learned. They've been at this over many millennia, you know, and modern medicine has been at it for a few decades at most. So uh, that's what the McKenna Academy is about, is to create educational opportunities, transformative events and this sort of thing, and basically create a, a forum for dialogue and understanding. Uh, in the in the spirit of the mystery schools, um, and so you know, what is the mystery? Well, the mystery is existence. The mystery is where we find ourselves. You know, our existential situation. If you think about it, we know very little about the world. Even, I mean, science you know, is sometimes pretty arrogant about it, what it thinks it knows. And, and one thing that psychedelics are useful for is they remind us how little we know, you know, and that's a good thing for scientists to inter internalize is to remember, yeah, well, you guys, you think you have it all figured out, but what about this? What about this? What about this? And this whole realm of phenomena and existence that we don't have a clue about, you know, there's far more that we do not know than that we know. And scientists should uh, remember that. I, I mean, I, I am a scientist, I have admiration for scientists, but I think, I think you cannot take psychedelics and not recognize that it has its limits. Yeah, certainly. I mean, obviously, the scientific method has made some incredible discoveries in neuroscience and cognition and psychology. And I mean, serotonin being a perfect example of being discovered through psychedelic research, but it seems like you were saying science can only really understand a fraction of what is known and we can only really observe. And what we're finding through things like psychedelics and, and other spiritual practices is observation. And what we can see is such a minute aspect of existence and consciousness, I suppose. Um, and it is true we were able to interact and connect with the energy around us through our sensory experience. We've we found that through science and, and it's obvious to this human experience. But it also seems our brain acts as a filter or reducing valve of reality and only allows access to such a small fraction of what is there or, or even what is true. And I want to ask you a question. Do psychedelics 
allow us to experience more of what is already there? Or do you believe they give access to things that are not usually available to us? Well, I think it's both. I, I mean, you just touched on a favorite theme of mine, you know, this idea that, you know, we, uh, our brains are programmed to construct a model of reality, you know, and essentially, uh, this is neuroscience now, they call it the default mode network is, is the current neuroscience term. I used to call it and I, I still do, I call it the reality hallucination, you know, and it's what our brain does. And you're right, it works through this filtering mechanism, this reducing valve. A lot of what the brain does is exclude information to what's coming into us, you know, because if it all came through, it would be very confusing and very, very destabilizing and, and probably quite overwhelming. So the brain constructs this model of reality, which is, you know, not reality by definition, a more or less serviceable model. That's what we inhabit. We never experience reality directly. You know, we experience it through these filters and psychedelics can temporarily disable those filters and let more information in that normally we exclude because it's not relevant to our immediate survival, you know, and you don't want to take psychedelics in a circumstance where basically you have to worry about your immediate survival. I mean, if the, you know, if the saber tooth tiger is stalking you, you probably shouldn't take a psychedelic. You should pay what's happened, pay attention to what's happening. But if you're in a safe place, you know, and that's the whole thing about set and setting, then you can let those gating mechanisms, you can lower those gating mechanisms. And when that happens, you do notice things that are normally in the background. You know, I like to say it brings the background forward. These kinds of things, they're always there, you know, but we're programmed not to notice them because, because they're not they're not relevant to our immediate survival. But when you do see them, you realize that this is a lot of the richness of experience that goes on in the background. It goes on whether you're stoned or not. You just don't see it all the time or you ignore it and you know it loses its significance. But then when you reverse that equation, it becomes very interesting and, and much more, much richer. And then in addition, there is a, another realm of, of experience that is just normally uh, closed to us completely, except maybe in dreams or uh, paranormal states or this sort of thing. You know, this whole realm of experience of, uh, you know, I guess you could say the, the, the phenomenology of the shamanic universe, you know, the apparent a uh, place, another dimension, whatever you want to call it, that's populated with all of these apparently intelligent entities, which may be separate from us or maybe part of us. It's not clear, it's open to debate, you know, but there's that realm of experience. And that's, that's a very, uh, you know, that, that's a very, uh, important part of reality as far as the indigenous worldview 
you know, is concerned. And uh, uh, we can debate all day whether that's a real place, a real dimension, and these entities are actually autonomous and independent of us, or are they an aspect of us that has, you know, turned around and presents itself to us as though it was not, you know, as though it were separate. Very hard to know whether, you know, which is true. And I'm not sure that it's uh, even necessary. I, I, in the first place, I'm not sure how you would prove it one way or the other. And I'm not sure it's even important, you know, in a certain way. The, what's important is, is the information worth it? Is the inf does the information seem valid that you get from these interactions with these, uh, you know, healing entities or these, you know, wise but uh, non-material intelligences that, that psychedelics give access to. So, you know, I think the jury is out really on where the, where the uh, you know, how this is, where these things are. Maybe they're simply constructs of the mind that, uh, you know, we normally don't perceive or can't perceive because, you know, the, you know, the default mode network has us trapped in this, in this bubble, you know, and we can't step out of it until we, until we demolish it temporarily or disable it. You mentioned about, I guess, what is real and what is true. Now, you know, some would say reality is perceptive. So I guess whatever you experience is, is the truth. And I guess in terms of absolute versus relative truth, a lot of science is obviously a relative truth when you, you know, you're looking at empirical evidence and you're looking at things through technology and what you can observe. And that is true because this happened through this certain thing, I guess, relatively speaking. And I know Stan Groff has done an incredible amount of work, especially in modeling the psyche. And I want to hear your, I guess, discussion around the interaction or the relationship between brain, mind, and consciousness and where you think that kind of dance or interplay or, or what your kind of uh, philosophy is on that? Well, um, <laughs> you, you know, there's nothing simple about any of this, you know, and, and uh, so, you know, you put your finger on, I think the big challenge for neuroscience uh, and science in general, or, and, and simply the, the, the effort to expand our knowledge, right? So the question is, the, the brain and the mind and consciousness, I don't, uh, you know, are these generated from the brain? Is this a, uh, is this an epiphenomenon in a certain sense that in other words, you require a nervous system to generate these experiences and it originates within the brain, you know? And the other side of that, the other thing you can say is, well, maybe the brain is a detector of consciousness more than a generator of consciousness. I think in fact, maybe it's a bit of both, you know? I think, I do think that consciousness or mindedness, if you wanna put it that way, is kind of a fundamental, uh, uh, aspect of reality that is built into reality at all levels, the most from the most fundamental level to the to the cosmic level, 
uh, you know, and uh, I mean, this idea is reflected in notions like panpsychism. And, you know, I, I guess I'm a panpsychist, you know, I believe that mind is a fundamental organizing principle, you know, in the universe. And so, but I also think that the brain has a lot to do with consciousness. And it may be that, uh, you know, these, these qualities are built into reality and they're, they're part of reality, but they don't manifest overtly until you have hyper complex uh, levels of organization you know, which is what you find in the brain. You know, the brain is a hyper-connected uh, piece of tissue, <laughs> you know, with, with billions of neurons and trillions of, of interconnections. And when you look into nature and you see these networks, these hyper-connected networks, it's also where you find, you know, the intelligence, whether there is, uh, you know, uh, like fungal networks or uh, mycorrhizal networks in in forests and this sort of thing. You don't have to have brains to have intelligence. You know, I mean, we see it in brains and brains are, uh, you know, these complex, highly organized biological structures that in us and similar, uh, you know, mammals are the seat, you know, are the the center of consciousness, but it, it may simply be that these, uh, you know, this high degree of organization enables it to perceive patterns of uh, intelligence that are outside of itself. So the mind brain problem, this is the huge problem in neuroscience, and I dare say in philosophy, and in science in general, you know, uh, how do you think about this? How do you clearly sort this out? That's the tricky part, you know, because we're talking about systems that we, you know, that by definition, we completely, uh, we incompletely understand what is, what is going on, you know? So psychedelics are useful for this in, in studying this problem. Uh, you know, for example, I think like this weekend, we're having a big symposium that's uh, sponsored by City, City Lights Book and Synergetic Press. I don't know if you've seen it uh, about Sasha Shulgin, you know, Alexander Shulgin. And, you know, I think he made tremendous contribution to this to this problem, although he's never been acknowledged for it, but he created, by creating all of these psychedelics, he created these molecular probes, essentially, that can be used to explore this mind-brain problem, you know, and they demonstrate that there is a close relationship between the brain and consciousness and the mind. That seems trivial, but he, he created a set of molecules where you know you you tweak it one way and you have one kind of experience you tweak it another way and that changes the quality of the experience so that's very useful because here's a something real well we'll call it real provisionally a, a molecule and you can tweak that molecule and you can get reliable uh changes in 
you know, in its psychopharmacological spectrum, in its spectrum of effect. So I've always thought that uh, Sasha's work, you know, was very profound in that respect, you know, and, and sadly, because what he was doing was forbidden science, you know, at the time. I mean, he was sort of allowed to do this because he helped out the DEA with their, with their forensic work and so on. So they gave him a license and he could make all these things, which he did, and then tested them on himself and a group of close friends and kept careful notes. I always thought that this it, you know, rose to the level of uh, deserving a Nobel Prize. But of course, because it was forbidden science, that couldn't happen. And, uh, uh, you know, and it's kind of like, well, if you're doing forbidden science, you know, you're probably doing something right in a certain sense, because, you know, the goal of science is to push the envelope. You know, the goal of science in the true sense, you know, in the true sense, science is the, is the search for understanding of the universe. And the whole point is to push the envelope of what is known, you know, and uh, the, these are tools for doing that in the case of science, you know, in the case of consciousness, these psychedelics are tremendously useful for, for that. So, uh, you know, I, I thought he should have gotten a Nobel Prize, but nobody you know nobody looked at it in that way at the time but anyway uh well one one thing i did want to say about so one thing that kind of sets science apart from a lot of other intellectual disciplines like philosophy and so on is that it purports to provide a method by which you can ask questions of nature through experiment construct hypotheses and then test the hypotheses and get answers back that are meaning, meaningful, hopefully, most of the time. So it's unusual in that it's a self-correcting kind of thing. It's a, it's a noetic process, but unlike, say, a religious doctrine, you know, which you're just basically supposed to accept, and it's not subject to revision. But science, if it's practiced the correct way, it's all about constructing ideas, suppositions, which we formally call hypotheses, about the way something works. And then, rather than try and prove the hypothesis, because you can never really prove anything, you try to disprove it. You know, and that's that requires a certain amount of intellectual honesty. You construct a supposition about how something works, then you try and knock it down. You know, and in the process of doing that, you see the the holes in the idea, what is missing, the elements that are missing. So then you revise the hypothesis. Some, something I wanted to ask, and just to provide some context, if it's based on you know the research, uh, the the recent DMT course documentary and the work of Stephen Barker and the paper called Building Alien Worlds. I'm not sure if you, you're familiar with it, uh, Dennis. Yeah. Um, basically, at the moment, serotonin, sort of like in mainstream science, is understood as this neurotransmitter that has a lot to do with a lot of physiological processes, mood regulation, cognition, etc. But do you think 
um, as we understand more about serotonin and similar molecules like you know DMT and you know 5-amino glutathione, uh, etc. Do you think we can start understanding them as different uh, keys or you know that bind to these receptors and help us codify reality in a different way and therefore access give us access to different types of information? Well, yes, yes, I think I think they do. I mean, you know, the work that uh, is emerging uh, uh, with respect to DMT lately is that uh, you know it 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 does not. I mean, the former idea was that this was produced by the pineal gland that that it could induce altered states under states of high stress like dying, for example. Uh, but it turns out that the, uh, the pineal is probably not so important in terms of the physi physiology of DMT uh, uh, because it can't produce enough essentially to have an effect like this. But, but the work that's emerged lately with Stephen Barker and some of his colleagues is that there's a lot of DMT in the brain. It's present in about the same levels that serotonin is present. So that really changes the picture. You know, this stuff is there. What is its function? And similarly, well, I don't know if there's there been, uh, uh, you know, what, what's been done with 5-methoxy DMT, but that's another one. So maybe it's that, you know, this family of tryptamines, DMT, 5-methoxy, and serotonin all work together in the creation of this reality hallucination, you know, and DMT and 5-methoxy DMT may have to do more with, uh, say, modulation of dream states and this kind of thing and, uh, you know, attentional processes and so on. So there's a lot to be learned here, uh, you know, and uh, um, it's a pity that there isn't more funding for this, but uh, because I think it's really important. But anyway, you know, the picture of the role of DMT in, in the brain is, uh, is not well understood. And I think it's changed, it's evolved uh, beyond the point when we were assuming it, it all had to do with the pineal. You mentioned DMT's involvement in the dream-like state, and, and there's been, I guess, speculation and discussion around the dream state and its similarity to the psychedelic state and, you know, having comparisons between the two and, and the similarities between the two. And when we're dreaming, you know, our position of consciousness is very different to our normal waking consciousness in that we don't have that regular position of the self. We're not putting ourselves in a position where it's the self that's doing the perceiving. It's just kind of information is just coming in and we're just experiencing that information. And I've spoken to, to obviously a, a few people on, on this podcast and often I get into the discussion around a loss of self in the psychedelic experience and I'm often pulled up to say well it's not as much a loss of self but more about feelings of connection and so I wanted to raise this with you because 
I find that selflessness and feelings of connection can go hand in hand. So what is your take on selflessness versus feelings of connection? Well, um, I, I think these are aspects of the same thing. I mean, I, I think that, you know, by, by uh, sort of uh, dissolving the ego, you know, which, which they can do. And uh, along with that goes the notion of, of disabling these default mode networks. So the default mode network and the ego is part of that structure. This is the, this is the, the bubble that we dwell in, you know, all, all the time. And so its function is to establish boundaries, you know, between the self and the experience of the self and whatever is out there, you know, and we'll leave aside for the moment of exactly what do we mean by out there? Because, you know, we use these terms very loosely, but we don't really think about what, what does it mean? Is there even really an out there and in there and that sort of thing? But I think that, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that the dissolution is part of the connectedness, you know, in other words, you have to dissolve the boundaries, then you realize that you're not separate from everyone else and from the cosmos in general. So these, these, uh, you know, these substances are useful for that, you know, they, it, it's not an either or yes, they dissolve the ego and the boundaries temporarily. Once that happens, you can apprehend that yeah, you, we really are all one, you know, and all those cliche terms that we apply to this, you know, cosmic uh, consciousness and so forth. Is, is, is this how you see and you envision the, the evolution of consciousness growing towards uh, like less individualistic towards a more global global consciousness or how do you envision the evolution of global consciousness? Well, uh, that's hard to say. Maybe so. You know, I don't really know. I don't think anybody knows, but you know, uh, the, uh, the Jesuit philosopher, uh, Teilhard de Chardin talked about this in, in terms of evolution. He talked about the new sphere, you know, and the idea was that we were evolving towards some kind of hive mind, towards some kind of awakened uh, collect collectivity of minds where it was all connected and was hyper intelligent and, and maybe that is. And in, in his idea, that was the ultimate goal of evolution. That was the omega point of evolution. And I guess it, you know, since he was working in, you know, from the from the concept of Catholic theology and so on, that when you reach that point, I guess you either achieve godhood or you essentially you evolve into God. Uh, no wonder he was a heretic, you know. I mean, in the Catholic Church, he was not appreciated in a lot of ways. But it could be something like that. It could really be something like that. And maybe these tools, these psychedelics are a way to move that process along. Yeah, I, 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 will, I will certainly agree. And the reason I brought up that question uh, was because of this, this quote you've got in the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy, 
uh, just going back to the topic, the, the entire biospheric community of species is conscious and seeks to advance the evolution of consciousness through collaboration and symbiosis. So that's sort of what I was uh, trying to get at and see um, what, how you envision this, this evolution of consciousness. Uh, so it seems that um, collectiveness uh, and understanding of interconnectedness seems to do with, with evolution as we, as we evolve from you know, unicellular to multicellular organisms more complex perhaps we still will tap into the the collective collective mind collective unconscious as well through psychedelics yes yes i mean Deschardins' idea was more or less anthropomorphic you know it was all about the evolution of human consciousness but uh my perspective is that human consciousness is is part of this community of sentient species, you know, and I'm a believer in the Gaia idea and that the biosphere itself is a conscious and intelligent organism, you know, and that we are part of this, whether we like it or not. And sadly, you know, in this particular historical juncture, we're becoming separated from it. We're becoming out of harmony with the rest of the community of sentient species. We've got off on this track, which is not helpful, of increasing separation and, uh, you know, in a sense, not uh, accepting our role as a, a symbiote with the rest of nature. You know, we have the Western mind has been poisoned by these notions that we own nature you know, and it exists only to serve us and nature dominates, you know, we dominate nature. Actually, it's the opposite. So I, again, I think that, uh, uh, you know, particularly in these times, the ability of psychedelics to refocus, reshift our attention to uh, understand that, you know, we're, we're part of nature, we need to be part of this this partnership, this of uh, community of sentient species. Right now, we're like the, uh, you know, we're almost like a virus or something that has invaded this global organism and is causing a great deal of damage to it, you know, because we're not with the program. We think that we're apart from it. And, uh, and this is one of the big lessons that I think psychedelics has to teach us. And People are learning these lessons. They're having these experiences. You know, the question, the thing that bothers me and that I worry about is, is it happening fast enough? You know, uh, I, I'm not somebody who says that, well, if everybody just took psychedelics, it would all be fine. Uh, I, think, I think it's a part of the solution, but, you know, we're slow to, we're slow to wake up. You know, and that's what we need to do is wake up to what's happening. And, uh, you know, psychedelics are one of the catalysts that can lead us to that. But not everybody, you know, is, they're not accessible to everybody. A lot of people who could benefit from taking it will not. So it's playing out, you know, this way. There is no perfect solution. Uh, but, you know, it, we have to uh, take advantage of the of these medicines and use them in, in the best way we can to try to 
uh, advance our co-evolution. Thank you. Um, on, on a personal note, I just wanted to add that I was, I was really excited to chat with you as you and Terence had this big experience in La Chorrera in Colombia. Um, I myself, I'm, I'm born and raised, I'm, I'm a Colombian. So oh. it's, it's, great, it's great to put uh, Colombia on, on, on the spotlight uh, in the map, because usually Peru gets all the, all the credit for this. Um, yes. You know, ayahuasca indigenous tradition. Uh, so I myself was introduced to Yahe okay. uh, at an early age of like 17 and 18. And from there, I just developed such extreme <laughs> passionate interest about these substances. Right. And I want to ask you, uh, for upcoming researchers such as myself, uh, what sort of research questions should be posed for the next five to 10 years? Oh, boy. Well, um, <laughs> um, it depends. You know, I mean, there, there are many threads, right? There are many, uh, many threads. Uh, I, I think, obviously, in the neurosciences, you know, the, the big question is what we touched on earlier. What is, what is consciousness? We know it exists, but we can't really put our finger on exactly what it is. How does it relate to brain functions? <clears throat> and, uh, uh, you know, th those are the big questions in neuroscience, you know, the, the mind-brain problem, essentially. Uh, but there are other things in science as well. I mean, if, if you look at astronomy, for example, I mean, I I'm used to be an amateur astronomer and I still follow it, still follow all the discoveries in cosmology and things like that. And I tell you, it, it's pretty out there right now. I mean, you know, our current understanding of the cosmology of the universe is undergoing big changes. There are new discoveries. So this is another place where uh, we come up against the limitations of our knowledge, you know, uh, that's really quite humbling, or it should be humbling if we're paying attention. Uh, so I think that, you know, we need to, I mean, it's very hard to, you know, say, you know, what, what is going to happen in the next five to 10 years on these different fronts. Uh, I think at some point they are all going to overlap, you know, but I think you have, uh, you know, certainly with respect to consciousness, that's, that's the big holy grail right now for neuroscience. But, uh, you know, in, in terms of cosmology and the understanding of the universe, that's, a huge area of flux. And then on the other end of the scale, what's happening at the molecular level and the quantum level? You know, uh, you, know you, you hear, you know, there, there are different theories that quantum mechanical processes may underlie conscious experience, you know, so we need to investigate that as well. Uh, I mean, there's, there's no lack of things to be discovered, you know, and I, I sort of think that science is, uh, you know, it's, it's never, occasionally you hear people come forth and say, well, you know, we, we pretty much have this thing figured out, you know, there's just a few 
minor details, hanging details to be elucidated and we'll have this theory of everything, you know, this model that totally, totally explains everything we know. And about the time someone comes along with that, then some other discovery is made that completely blows it up, right? And I think it's a, a reminder that, again, how little we know, how limited our knowledge is uh, in, the, in these different areas. And, and it's good to always keep that in mind, you know, because science can construct these very detailed models of particular uh, phenomena, uh, but they're usually very limited. They're very restricted. It's very good for dissecting uh, a certain range of phenomena, not so good for putting together the whole picture, you know, and that may, and maybe it's not even possible to come up with a scientific view of, uh, you know, of reality. Uh, but at a certain point, you're going to come up against the limitations of science, but you can write it as far as possible. And then eventually you may reach a point, an epistemological wall, if you will, where you have to say, well, science can't advance beyond this. You know, it just doesn't have the tools to advance beyond it. So, uh, and then maybe we have to create or discover some other more powerful approach to it, some kind of meta-science. I, I was just going to ask if we could, if we were to narrow this question down in, you know, um, psychedelic research in terms of clinical applications, it's it's about it's it's about to explode or it's already exploded into a lot of research. Do you have any sort of research questions that perhaps you would like to be be addressing in this field? If we narrow narrow it down to clinical applications of psychedelics, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, well, you know, I'm sort of my research days are over, you know, I'm not actively involved in neuroscience research and I follow it as much as I can, but I, I don't have a, a formal academic affiliation or anything like that. Uh, you know, so in that respect, uh, I, I can't say, I, I think that uh, uh, potentially, uh, well, there, there are many things left to discover. And with respect to psychedelics, I would like to see, uh, it's hard to know how to approach some of this stuff uh, because science depends on being able to test your hypotheses, you know, but I would like to see uh, uh, further exploration of what you might call the paranormal you know, and uh, in, in the indigenous societies, you know, there are certain expectations of the use of psychedelics in indigenous societies has often a paranormal component, you know, and, and really the question of, you know, what is, uh, uh, you know, what can most naively be asked, the question of, you know, uh, psychedelics apparently access these realms of non apparently <clears throat> non-human intelligences uh, and another dimension that they inhabit and this sort of thing uh, 
And is that a real thing? And how could we approach that? Are these things real or are they constructs of the mind? You know, but it's a tricky thing because at the end of the day, everything is a construct of the mind, right? Because we live, because we're, you know, even when we take psychedelics, we can sort of do, disable some of the filters that we have to live in that we, we cannot step outside of it completely. And uh, so how do you test these kinds of hypotheses? You know, if you encounter some apparently intelligent entity in a psychedelic experience that is not, that doesn't appear to be yourself, you know, how do you know it's not a part of yourself? How can you, or how can you trick it into uh, betraying that it is, that it is real, you know, or demonstrating that it's real? My, my brother used to, in his uh, own personal experiences with mushrooms, you know, he would take high doses by himself and he would get into dialogues essentially with these entities that any of us can encounter on mushrooms. And, and he would say, you know, tell me something I can't possibly know, you know? And if you can do that, then I'll believe you're real. But it's a paradox because how do you know what you don't know? <laughs> you know, I mean, until they say it, you might say, well, I, gee, I didn't know, but I knew that, you know? So I, I don't know what is, you know, where all this is going. I feel that psychedelics are reaching somewhat of a maturity. And of course, since Roland Griffiths really opened up the research a couple of decades ago now, and he discovered that these can be used incredibly safely, provided the context, the set and setting, coined by Albert Hoffman. But I want to ask you, you mentioned earlier that perhaps you know, maybe everyone shouldn't just jump on and take psychedelics and that's the answer to all the questions. But there is clearly a, a dire need for these substances to be used within a mental health context. And given the context of the scope of mental health around the world and in Australia, there's a need to arm psychiatrists with psilocybin or other psychedelics, including MDMA, which has obviously been shown to be incredibly useful in treating PTSD. So do you think that in Western culture, psychiatrists and other medical practitioners will be the gatekeepers of these medicines? Or do you think there may be other approaches that may be fitting as well? Well, I hope they're not the gatekeepers. You know, um, I, I think that it's, uh, it's great to develop these, these substances as therapies and, and really transform psychiatry in the process because uh, you know they can't be used in the context of psychiatry as it's currently practiced effectively in order to be effectively used for that kind of therapy we have to completely change the paradigm of mental health care that's the easy part you know I would not like to see a situation where only clinicians, only doctors are the gatekeepers to these, to these things, because that's totally disregarding, you know, the indigenous traditions and the indigenous people have been the keepers of this knowledge for 
about 10,000 years or so before there was any FDA to tell them what they had, what they could and could not do. So what I would like to see is a synthesis. I would like to see this traditional knowledge and modern biomedical knowledge come together in some kind of a fusion and that combines the best of elements of both of these things, you know, uh, rather than clinics, what I would like to see happen to integrate psychedelics into society is, uh, uh, is to, uh, well, first of all, they have to be, they have, the, the whole legal structure has to be changed. You know, it doesn't work if these things are prohibited, you know, and there are elements, there are some, in some cases, perhaps that should continue, but, but in general, these things should not be prohibited. And, uh, you know, I think the, the right evolution for this to integrate them into society is to have uh, therapeutic centers that are not like clinics, you know, they're more like spas or they're more like retreat centers as you find in Peru and other places. And, uh, but they operate in the, in the open, you know, they're not prohibited. And I think every community could have a center like this, which would be, of which psychedelics would be a part of what's offered. It wouldn't be a psychedelic therapy center. It would be like a holistic wellness center or something like that, where people could come and they could take psychedelics. They could have a choice of what psychedelics to take under what circumstances, whether they want an individual type of experience with a therapist or whether they want a group ceremonial experience. All of these should be on the menu and should be a choice that people have. But along with that, you know, preparation for psychedelic experience and the integration that follows is also very important as well as other kind of wellness technologies, wellness therapies that people might practice like meditation, for example, uh, or even like yoga or, you know, even nutritional practices. So it'd be like a holistic wellness center essentially that, uh, uh, you know, that offers these services and among, among the services are psychedelics. You know, and, and that that's the model I would like to see happen. So, and, and I think that could solve the, a lot of the problems associated with psychedelic tourism, you know, which uh, particularly with ayahuasca, for example, really in a lot of ways adversely impacts these societies. But what if you, you know, instead of bringing people down to South America to take the medicine, bring the medicine up to the North America or Australia or wherever they're going to be taken to these wellness centers for relationships with indigenous peoples to, you know, make the medicines and make them available and even make their shamanic practitioners, their curanderos and so on available to these centers and everybody benefits, you know, and that's what I would like to see happen. And, uh, in certain circumstances, maybe you want a, a more highly structured type of clinical setting for certain things. People should have 
that available if they want it, if they can afford it. This is gonna be another issue because most likely uh, insurance is not gonna pay for this type of therapy for a while. So, but we need, we can develop a new model where psychedelics can be viewed as, uh, you know, part of, part of the community, essentially. I mean, just, just as in the same way that indigenous, indigenous societies, you know, the, the practice of psychedelics, these ceremonial, uh, you know, the practice of shamanism and so on is not apart from the community. It is, it is very much a part of the community, you know, and, and the, the shaman or the curandero is kind of a, a, uh, a conduit, you know, between the village or the, yeah, the village and the, uh, and this spiritual realm, whatever it is. So something like that, I mean, I guess in some ways, maybe I'm talking about a religion, you know, but I am, I'm kind of allergic to the idea of religions. Although, you know, if you look at some outfits like the UDV or the Santo Daimi, uh, maybe that's a model there. I mean, there are definitely religions, those, those institutions, but something along those lines, but without so much the dogmatic uh, overlay could be very, very useful. Uh, and that's what I, that's how I think we get psychedelics into uh, society on the global level. Yeah, certainly. And I really do believe that psychedelics can be that glue between so many different religions and cultures and traditions. Because, I mean, if you read any of the religious texts, a lot of the time they're talking about very similar things just in different language. I mean, 80 to 90% of the texts are, are talking about the same thing, but in different ways. And often they argue, well, I guess not always argue, but are often pointing out differences rather than the immense similarities. And I think psychedelics should play a really important role of being that glue or that binding or the symbiosis between humans to not necessarily come to an agreement, but, but a trust or, or a mutual spot. And I recently spoke to a founding member of Compass Pathways. I'm sure you're familiar with, with Compass Pathways. And I wanted to chat to you briefly before we close out this conversation because I spoke to him about their decision to patent the crystallized version of psilocybin. And I want to ask you what you think because you mentioned that you believe that the future of psychedelics in terms of retreats or wellness centers and granting access to the public and of course those with mental difficulties and having the option to do either of them, whether it is for spiritual practice or if you're having the intention of, of fixing particular rigid mental patterns that you're encountering. But what do you think of the future of psilocybin sales will look like? Will it be mostly synthetic and possibly tethered to FDA approved therapy that goes along with it? Or do you think it will be more related to the sale of organic matter? Well, by, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, obviously some of these therapies are gonna be uh, linked to synthetic psilocybin and they'll be, you know, highly regulated, highly structured, uh, like clinical settings. And that's just, 
inevitable, but I don't think it should be limited to that. And I think that people should have a choice. Given a choice, I think, uh, of taking synthetic psilocybin in a clinical setting, taking mushrooms in a more natural setting, maybe even a group ceremony setting, most people would go for that. I think most people would prefer that. One thing you, you know, you lose when you take synthetic psilocybin, although not really, but you sort of lose this idea that this is coming from nature, you know? I mean, it is coming from nature because it's made by all natural organic chemists, you know, but they're part of nature, but it's not, you know, directly from the, the mind of Gaia, if you will. I mean, the, you know, Gaia has given us these plants, these mushrooms and so on as gifts and we should use them, you know, we, we should use them that way. So, uh, you know, what I don't want to see happen is a, is a situation where say psilocybin is approved for clinical studies or a clinical clinical applications. And, you know, if, if you can afford it, you can go to a clinic, you can pay $30,000 and have a psychedelic therapy system uh, session. But if you want to just go out into the woods and find mushrooms and eat them, then you're a felon, you know, and you can be prosecuted from that. That is not right, you know, and we, we want to avoid a situation like that, you know, but it's a tricky, it's a tricky situation. Uh, you know, we need, I mean, lately uh, in my talks, I've been talking about the right to symbiosis, you know, that we have the right to form a symbiotic relationship with any organism that we want. You know, it's it's just built into biology, and and because we're talking about alliances between humans and non-human organisms, it, it's not even a human right; it's an organismic right to form these relationships. You know, and that should just be stated as a fundamental principle. You know, none of these plants or fungi—I mean, the evil—they're not evil. You know, and they should not be treated as something that should be eradicated from the face of the earth you know i mean that's just nuts you know they have a right to exist and uh we should you know as entities that share the biosphere with these things we should be able to form these symbiotic relationships with these with these things uh and you know but it is it's it's always they're always compl complex you know, there are always wrinkles to this stuff, right? Uh, and complexities, for example, in the decriminalization movement that's going on in the States and Canada right now, decriminalized plant medicines, maybe some of that going on in Australia, I don't know. Uh, but right now the big controversy is as these municipalities decriminalize these psychedelic medicines and as as even on the state level you know these different initiatives uh referenda get passed to decriminalize psilocybin and so on but then it turns out peyote you know is among those plants that the decriminalized nature movement is pushing to to decriminalize 
But the Native American groups are saying, please don't decriminalize peyote because the, it protects us. You know, it's our thing. It belongs to our culture and it's endangered. So the best thing you can do, you white people, is leave it alone, you know? And the impulse, you know, is to say, well, but we have a right to this too. Yes, probably in some abstract sense, but in terms of protecting the peyote, I, I feel like it's better to, uh, to step away. I mean, you know, I've taken peyote, you may have taken peyote, it's wonderful medicine. But maybe the moral thing to do in the case of peyote is to say, okay, we recognize this is your this is your whole life, you know, to the Native Americans, and uh, and it's endangered. So out of respect for that, we will leave it alone. We trust you to be the stewards of this thing, and we'll respect that. I suppose there are other groups that you could say the same with respect to ayahuasca or iboga. All of, a lot of these plants are, you know, they're endangered and there's more, more uh, pressure on them than ever before. That's why I think we have to develop uh, uh, ways to, again, bring the medicines to the people rather than people to the medicines. Because in the case of ayahuasca and iboga to a certain degree, these things can be cultivated rapidly and you can, you can cultivate sufficient supplies. Peyote is a kind of a special uh, case because it takes, you know, 15 years to, to reach maturity before it should be harvested. And that's a long ways to wait. But maybe in particular, you know, maybe in this particular case, we should hold off. Uh, I don't think that it's necessarily just from a perception point of view, I don't think it's necessary to say, well, we'll keep this peyote illegal. You know, we'll keep it prohibited because the idea of a plant being illegal is abhorrent to me, you know, and a lot of people, but I think we could turn around and say, well, we won't say it's illegal. We won't say it's illegal. We'll just say it's protected, you know, and we acknowledge that the indigenous people who have, you know, for whom this has been their whole, you know, cultural treasure for so many thousands of years, we acknowledge that, you know, we won't infringe on that, you know, and, and this requires, uh, you know, a conscious decision on the part of the psychedelic community to say, you know, we're just going to respect that and not infringe on it. Yeah, and just within the whole psychedelic community, I've, I mentioned before that Compass Pathways, obviously being a for-profit for psilocybin-assisted therapy for major depressive disorder and treatment-resistant depression, you know, there's a lot of different organizations and companies and initi initiatives that are that are coming up all the time in, in the psychedelic space. So I wanted to ask you, what do you make of all of that? What are your thoughts on for-profits and non-for-profit approaches to psychedelics in general? Well, I think that, uh, you know, uh, psychedelics are going to be developed by corporations that are for-profit, you know. Uh, there's just no way to avoid that, you know. And, and you know, if they were non-profit, you wouldn't see the kind of, 
economic resources and other resources that are being put toward this. I do think though that the for-profit corporations should have their feet held to the fire a little bit in terms of, in fact, more than a little bit in terms of their, uh, uh, you know, their moral obligations, you know, and they should commit a significant portion of their profits to uh, pres preserving the indigenous medicines and the indigenous cultures. That's the statement that we need to insist that they make. Some of these corporations are actually stepping up and doing that, you know, and saying, yeah, well, we'll develop, devote X percentage of our profits toward uh, indigenous cultures and, and preserving you know, traditional practices. Uh, but I think the psychedelic community should insist that it's more than token, you know, 5%, 10%, that doesn't get it. You know, they need to uh, make a bigger commitment to that. There's one capital company in particular, which has kind of laid down the gauntlet called Vine Capital, uh, vine.vc, you can look at, They've come out with a position statement that says we're devoting 50% of our profits to indigenous causes and preservation of the environment and that sort of thing. I think that's more like what it should be. And not just, not necessarily, you know, they can be, the money can be spent on other causes like environmental preservation, habitat preservation, species protection, as well as. Uh, cultural protection. But I, I really think that if, if companies want to, uh, you know, develop psychedelics for profit, then they need to say, what are we doing? Here's what we're doing for reciprocity, you know, uh, to give back because, you know, they have an obligation to do that. I mean, it's always been about, uh, you know, exploitation you know, the whole, the, the concept is biopiracy, you know, and Western cultures always basically stolen the food and medicinal plants from indigenous culture, rarely give anything back. So hopefully that, that equation can be changed. And hopefully, uh, I mean, one thing the psychedelics may do is help, you know, the experiences themselves may help people realize that, yeah, we really need to be doing this. You know, uh, the people that are uh, on the forefront of developing psychedelics and for-profit environments, presumably they've had their experiences. If they haven't, they certainly should, uh, you know, avail themselves of that. And maybe they have a, uh, you know, a realization of, of this moral responsibility. Yeah, certainly. I'm really hoping that if all of this psychedelic therapy is able to be progressed within the medical space and the mental health space, that it isn't separated from these indigenous practices and these indigenous cultures. Obviously, there's going to be the Western way of doing things in terms of the clinical approach, and I think that will, will be there. But I really hope that it doesn't separate itself too far away from the indigenous practices and, and connection to spirit and connection to consciousness and really understanding this symbiotic 
relationship that, that we all have and we're all sharing this beautiful gift of consciousness. And Dennis, honestly, can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your day and donating your time to us and to Mind Medicine Australia to provide such a beautiful and eloquent description and explanation of these philosophical terms and discussion. So I really, really appreciate that. Now, before we do close this one out, is there anything else you would like to add? I think we covered it pretty well. You know, thank you for that. Uh, you know, gosh, I'm, I'm tempted to say, oh, shucks. I mean, I'm nobody special. I'm just a curious monkey, you know, but uh, I'm glad that you thank you for the kind words. And uh, yeah, I think we pretty well uh, covered the waterfront here. So we'll leave it there and I'll wish you uh, all the best with the conference. It's been an honor, Dennis. Thanks, Dennis. Okay. Perfect. Thank you so much. I'll leave you to your day. All right. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and for your interest and enthusiasm in mental health and psychedelic therapy. If you enjoyed this episode, which I hope that you did because you made it to the end, I will remind you that you can now financially support the podcast through Patreon. There is a link in the description. I make this out of my own time and would love to continue creating this type of content. There are, of course, zero-cost ways to support the channel. Share it with a friend, share it on social media, leave your review on whichever podcast platform that you are on. These are all excellent ways of helping to expose this information. Check out the show notes for all the links and thank you once again for your support and interest in this emerging space. Finally, the information in this episode is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing a health problem or disease and should consult with a doctor or other healthcare professional for medical advice or information about diagnosis and treatment. All right, we did it. Thank you so, so much. And I'll see you here for the next one.